Well, let's say thank you to the Lord for Zach and the team for leading us today. We've got people adjusting, people running around doing stuff that they don't normally do because, as Eric mentioned, Andrew and Elevate are away. Our youth group is out, uh, so he's up in the mountains with a bunch of kids. And so, yes, pray for them. I actually got a, a, a text from Andrew um, that, you know, my daughter's up there, Grace is up there. One thing you never want when your kid's away on retreat, you don't want a text from the youth leader, right? So that, the text came and I'm going, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, what, what is going on here? And uh, thankfully, it was a picture of all the kids and everybody underneath this massive redwood tree. It was just beautiful. So we do praise God for that. And, but that, you know, you're not seeing a bunch of the kids around and a lot of the team around because they're up, they're up there with them. So... Um, so let's just take some time right now to pray for them, can we? Uh, Lord, we, we bring uh, Elevate to you now. We thank you for all the kids that have joined them on uh, this trek up into the Redwoods. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, even this day as they celebrate uh, the Lord's Day there together. Uh, for the young people that, that don't know you, uh, we would ask, Lord, and even in these moments now, that your word would go forward in such a way by your Spirit's power that that they'd be transformed, that they would be born again, that they would come to know you. We pray that those that do know you, they'd be strengthened in you. We thank you that uh, we're, we have so many opportunities and ways to care for the next generation of, of your people. And then we pray that you'd make them into men and women that love you more than anything else in the whole world and that they would have an impact for you in this dark world. So give uh, the leaders grace, give them safe travels home, and we praise you in advance for what you've accomplished during uh, this Elevate Retreat. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've got several other, th- other things happening uh, right now. And if you've noticed the Ed Wing at all, you can just see that there's progress being made. And so really grateful for Paul DeLancey and, and the team of people around him that are making that happen. Uh, we praise God for that. And so now uh, they've had a lot of things going on that require, you know, actual, you know, a lot of skill. Things that I, you know, cutting tile, laying tile, uh, I don't know what you do. Grout tile? Do you grout tile? See, I don't even know. It's that stuff that goes between the tiles. They've been doing all those kinds of things, but now they're down to something that still requires skill, but more of us can probably do it. It's called painting. Okay, mo- you know, not everybody can do it, but, but you, you can. You can put a piece of tape on the wall. You can do all kinds of stuff. So next Saturday, 9 a.m., show up out there, and you can be a part of, of getting that paint up and, and making that happen. And so we'll look forward to what God's going to do uh, as we continue to, to make progress to, to open up our campus more, to make it more accessible to more people in more ways. So uh, just to, uh, as I was preparing for today and just getting ready, I, I, I don't know if you feel this at all, but there are times in my life where I just sense, man, Lord, I, I, I need revival. I want revival. Personally, in me. You ever sense that? You ever feel that way? And then certainly we, we look around and we see uh, the state of, of, of you know, uh, the people of God around the world, maybe here in the Bay Area, maybe other places, and we're going, oh, I, I want revival. Uh, we pray for it. We long for it. We desire it. And, and I think sometimes we, we get even confused about what it is. What is revival? What does it look like? Uh, what, what, what would happen if my life, if I, if I was revived, you know, personally? And, and sometimes we get, you know, 
confused because we think, well, revival for me, what that means is I've got the wind in my sails and all of my circumstances are ironed out and everything goes exactly the way I want it to. Amen, right? Someone said that, right? So you think that's it. Uh, or, or maybe, maybe there's a, an area in life where it, there's a trial or pain. And revival would be that be that would be taken away. Uh, you know, maybe it's going to be some other thing that that we've been after or desiring, and we think if revival came, then I would be this, or I would look like that. Uh, maybe we think of it corporately as a church. If the church is revived, then this is what's going to happen, and God's going to bring about that revival in this particular way. And maybe it's through an event of some kind, or or, or through something else, but. But when we find ourselves here in Ezra, as we continue through this book, we find that we're now in the point in the book where there's a cry basically coming out to God. And it's, God, you've revived us in the past. And this is God's people. You've revived us in the past. Please, Lord, do it again. Revive us again. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know what we're talking about because the people of God were uh, commissioned by Cyrus, a pagan king of, of Persia, to go back to Jerusalem. They're in exile there in Persia. He commissions them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And, and it's this massive event. And, and people leave and they, they come there and they begin the process of building. But then, as we've seen in previous weeks, there was opposition of various kinds. And it wasn't just the people that were immediately there in that moment in time. There were actually different phases of opposition coming under different leaders from, from King Darius to King Xerxes to King Artaxerxes and, and sort of the, the narration kind of telescoped ahead, if you will recall, to go through these different times where there was opposition to God's people, opposition to rebuilding this temple. And, and now we, we come to this, this uh, time where it's essentially, uh, as chapter 6 closed out and as, uh, as uh, we had kind of an a, a observance of the Passover done, and, and the, the praise of God in that way, and the joy in that. And, uh, and by the way, thank you, John, for, for taking us through that section. But what happens is that comes about, and then about 60 years go by before chapter 7 starts. <laughs> what? What's happening? Yeah, well, remember all the opposition that was described earlier? It's still pelting people. It's still bringing people down. There isn't just this kind of like open road. It's all glassy seas and everything's fine. No, they're running into different challenges. And so we find that as that time has passed of about 60 years or so, uh, now chapter 7 begins. And, and a certain leader comes on the scene. The leader's name is Ezra. You're like, wait, the book's called Ezra. I know. He doesn't show up until chapter 7. Now, he's been describing all these events for us prior to his arrival. But now Ezra arrives on the scene. And we find that, that God is reviving his people in the midst of all this turbulence and opposition. And he's going to use this guy, Ezra, to do that. And so, if you would, go ahead and, and uh, open to, the, to, to Ezra chapter 7. You'll find it on page 349. In the Old Testament, on the Bibles, on the chair rack in front of you. And the Old Testament is toward the beginning of the book. And so if you'd go ahead and turn there, and we see, as Ezra comes on the scene, that God's about to do some amazing things. So in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? 
Ezra, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 7. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Atibud, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zehariah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. I'm sorry, from the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand your word. We pray that your spirit who penned this would have his way in our souls to cause us to become the people you want us to be, that we would live in light of your truth and that you would revive us genuinely, that you would revive us personally, that you would revive us as a church, that you would revive us in, in our daily walk with you, that others would know you and that you would do a mighty work to bring many to yourself uh, as, as the, the light of the world and, and the only hope that we have for salvation, Jesus, our King. We praise you for him and we thank you for this time in your word. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we, as we look, go through this, this section t- today, we're going to see that God revives his people through turbulent times in several different ways. And, and the first thing we would see is this. He revives his people through turbulent times by providing leaders. And we see this in, in verses uh, 1 through, through 6, and we find it especially in verse 10. Now notice chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, that's that time lapse I was just telling you about. That's 60 years. <laughs> so after these things, it doesn't specify how much, but the preceding chapter concluded with the completion of the temple in 516 B.C. And now we're looking at the reign of Artaxerxes I, which is around 458 B.C. And, and so Ezra comes on the scene. You'll notice there's his genealogy is listed here. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, because, again, you know, for us, as we've mentioned, we just kind of check out a genealogy. It's like, oh, there's another list of names. Who cares? But for them... This is a big deal. This is one of the highlights because this shows that Ezra isn't just some guy who's coming up to lead. No, he has a lineage and a connection with the priesthood. He's, he's someone who, who has been uh, given by God this, this, the line of being a part of Aaron's line, which means that he is able to serve as a priest. What was built 60 years earlier? The temple. 
and things were not going according to plan. Again, again, the opposition that we described weeks ago, that's all at play there. And so here, this, this list is uh, showing his, his, his uh, qualifications as a priest. But he's not just that. Notice verse 6. He's also a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And, and a scribe was, was someone who was an expert in the scriptures. Uh, they, they knew what, what they said. They would study them. Uh, they, they would carry out the transmission of, of the scriptures. Sometimes that term would actually be used in a royal setting. So in, in, in a royal uh, kind of court setting where the person's kind of transcribing things, writing them down. But this is a person who's skilled in language, uh, but they're also, he's an expert in, in specifically the law of Moses. And, uh, and, and, and we find also that uh, he's, he's got a very particular bent within. We find that in verse 10. Uh, go ahead and look at verse 10. It says, for Ezra had set his heart What's he doing here? The heart is the mission control center. Uh, for, for them, when they we heard the term heart, it's not the thing thumping in your chest. You know, it's not. It's 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 the real you. It's the inner you. The idea of the heart uh, communicates the desires, uh, the will. It's where you make decisions. It's it's where you make plans. It's like your dreams. It's your it's the real you. And so he's saying he he set. Notice verse ten. He set his heart to certain things. And you look at that and you go, what What would that be? Well, first of all, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And you look at that and you go, what is that? Well, again, that's the law of Moses. He's already talked about that. It's it's certainly the Pentateuch at this time. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books, he's got those. And he set his heart to study that. And you think of, you know, what does Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 say? It talks about how, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Ezra has set his heart with that passage certainly in mind. That's what he wants to, to live as. That's what he wants to do. And, and, uh, and I find that fascinating. Again, the context here is the context of revival. And as Ezra is being used as an agent of revival even, as one who leads, certainly the principle for all of us would be, if I want revival in my life, what do I need to do? I need to set my heart my inner self, the real me, on what? Well, certainly, it includes to study the law. And we think, well, wait a minute, Chris, come on. That's, that's kind of cold, kind of academic, like study, study. I'm not into school, man. I got out of school. I got out of school for a reason. I want to be done. I want to move on. Believe me, I get it. Yeah, I know. I know. And some of you are in school right now, and you're going, please, give, bring the day. And I'm sorry, if you're in fifth grade, you've got a ways to go, okay? You've got a ways to go. But here's the thing. This study has the idea of seeking. It has the idea of examining something. This idea of study is not cold. It's not, again, it's his heart. He set his heart to study. So it's not just some distant academic subject. No, instead, this is a desire-filled endeavor to look closely at and to examine things. It's because there's intricacy and beauty to this. 
I don't know if you've ever looked at a painting that you really enjoy. Um, I, I frankly don't know nearly as much about paintings as my wife Janet does. Janet knows her paintings. She just, I don't know, she had this art history teacher and it all just stuck with her. And so whenever we're at a museum, she's like, okay, this period is, and she'll just kind of give me the tour. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. You know, and then she'll take me to the next one. But I, I really enjoy some of the Impressionist paintings, especially when, you know, they'll, they'll take these bold brushstrokes, right, and colors, and they just go, and you get this beautiful, let's say, a landscape. You know, you've got mountains, and you've got a river, and you've got like a city off to the side, and there's a bridge. And then you get closer and it looks kind of like, well, what is that? It's blurry. And then you get super close. I'm probably annoying to the guards because like, why is your nose so close to the painting, right? But I want to see each brushstroke, right? Every intricate color. It's all this beautiful kind of tapestry of texture and color. And then you back off and you see the whole thing. What did I just do with that painting? I studied it. And it wasn't just a... Two plus two is four. Unless you're using new math, then it's whatever you want it to be. No, I'm sorry. Um, right? No, it's, it's, you're studying it because there's a desire for it. You see what's happening? And so there's revival comes about when our hearts are set to examine, to take in the word of God. That's the first element of, of actual revival. And so he set his heart to, to, on the, you know, the study of the law of the Lord. But notice it's not just that. Notice what else Ezra does. And, next phrase, to practice it. Wow. Yeah, it's not just a matter of knowing for knowing's sake. It's not just, yeah, I've got the input. I put the you know, USB cable right about here. Chunk. It's USB-C, so it's faster. I hit the thing. Data. That's not it. No, I need to take this in, examine it, and bring it into my life so that I can live it out. You know, there's several places that the Bible describes that. You know, the book of James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. You hear in order to do it. You hear it in order to practice it. You realize that the scriptures know nothing of someone who says, yeah, I, I, I received Jesus, and now I'm a Christian. Hmm. That's not just, I received Jesus, and now I, I'm a Christian, I just live however I want. I, I, just, I said this prayer. You know, I, maybe I was in the mountains with the youth group, or I was, and I've said a prayer, and then you know, I, I'm a Christian now, and now I'm just going to go live my life however I want. That is foreign to the New Testament. There, that, what, what we see in the New Testament instead is this. I received Christ and because of that, I am now a Christ follower. In other words, I'm a disciple. I want to live in a way that honors him. In other words, I'm, my, my life is going to change. Again, not because I'm gutting this out to earn salvation or earn God's favor. That's impossible. We're told that's completely impossible. Uh, you know, in the book of Romans, very clearly, no one will be justified by works of the law. So you're not going to be saved by works. But when we are, in fact, coming to Christ and we actually receive him, we become Christ followers, meaning there's going to be fruit in our lives. 
There's going to be fruit. You know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says that clearly, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that are going to come about. Now, by doing those things, am I earning God's favor? Nope. But by doing those things, I'm demonstrating, I'm showing that I am actually someone who is in Jesus. Romans chapter 6 describes the same thing. Uh, There, um, you can almost hear the street opposition to Paul as he's preaching in ancient cities throughout the Roman Empire. And they say, hey, Paul, you talk about grace a lot. There's a lot of grace going on in your life. So if grace is really why we're saved, then maybe I should sin more. Because that way I'll get more grace. And, and Paul, you know, as you know, says, may it never be. It's, it's, it is the equivalent of taking someone by the lapels and going, are you crazy? You know, it's one of those things. And uh, that, that, that just is not, to, to say I said a prayer and now I'm a Christian and my life demonstrates no change whatsoever is to essentially make up a new category of what you think a Christian is. Jesus calls disciples to himself. Saved by grace through faith. I, I do think, I, I believe Luther, Martin Luther said this beautifully when he said, uh, we're saved by grace through faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. And so here, Ezra sets his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, to do it. Uh, When you think of the catastrophic failings that we've seen in Christian leadership in recent years, I mean, there's one after another after another. Some have had a profound impact. You know, Ravi Zacharias had a profound impact on me. I mean, he really helped me out. There were times I was confused, and I would read his stuff, I would listen to his stuff, and it helped me. And to, to find out that later on, this prominent, well-beloved Christian leader was not, in fact, walking with Jesus. And this is what I th- one of the criteria of a genuine revival and a genuine leader in the midst of that is not simply that they study the law of God, but they also practice it. They seek to practice it. Now, is it practicing it perfectly? <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> no. Ask anyone who knows me. <laughs> Um, especially my family, right? That's, we all need grace. We are all in desperate need of grace. And yet, there is a desire, there is a, a, a seeking after God to say, Lord, I want to follow you. And this is not just enough to academically know it. It's not just enough to sort of do a quick study on it and do data intake. No, I want to know you personally. I want to walk with you and I want to live out what you command. And that needs to be true for all of us if we want to know of revival. If that's something we're seeking, we need to practice it. And then notice what else he does. Ezra said his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it. And the last characteristic there is and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Again, to teach the scriptures. That was Ezra's focus. Because the fact is, the scriptures, God's word, that's the most powerful thing we can rely on for change and for revival. 
Why? Because the scriptures are the creative product of the Holy Spirit. He wrote them. He's the one that brings revival. And I think we find a similar principle in the, in the New Testament. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is what leaders are called to do from the time of Ezra all the way through to, to New Testament times to this very day. So 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's writing to Timothy some final instructions before he, he believes he's going to be taken home to be with the Lord. And so Timothy has been his disciple for, for a long time and he's passing on with several charges to him what his ministry needs to consist of. And, and I think 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is, is a powerful statement. When he, when he says to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge living and the dead. This is sobering. And by his appearing in his kingdom. So he's saying, Timothy, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to judge. And in light of that, I want you to do something. Verse 2, preach the word. That's it. That's, that's the call. Preach the word. And then he describes like when and how. And you'll notice it's all the time. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he describes what's to be like. What, what's the tone of that? Reprove, rebuke. I can't even talk. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Whoa. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just reproving and exhorting. It's doing it with patience, meaning uh, you're going to be stretched, Timothy. You're going to be pulled. It's going to be hard. And instruction, continue, continue to do this. And then he describes what Timothy can expect to face while he's doing this. Look at verse 3. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Wow, I almost, I almost you know, there, there are so many ways in which, again, here, especially in America, you know, we are the kind of like the, the, the culture of, of choice and, you know, preference. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm anticipating 25 years in the future, you'll walk into the foyer area and there'll be a pad and they'll give you the, the goggles, the Google goggles, you know, which is like, you know, virtual reality. And you'll go to the pad and you'll go, today I want a sermon that's going to be slightly convicting with a little bit of humor. I want him to be young. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe with a blue tie today. And, uh, and I want him to have at least three references to sports. And then the other person walks in, okay, he, it needs to be Old, old, old person, you know, wise, uh, no humor, seriousness, you know, preferably with a black turtleneck and really, really skinny spectacles, you know. And it's just, that, that's what I, and they all walk in, they'll sit there, they'll have the virtual thing. Everyone will get their own sermon. Why? Because it's all about what do you want? You know, you order your burger your way, you know. You go and you get uh, everything on your, in your feed is curated just for you. So we're, we're heading there. Just wait. I, I'm going to be replaced by AI. I get it. It's, it's not cool. It's 
going to happen. But that, that is what, what, what Paul is, is dealing with here. He's, he's saying there, there's going to be a way in which people want their own preference no matter what. And they're, and they're willing to do whatever they need to do to get that. Notice, it's, they will accumulate to themselves these teachers. So they're the ones out there um, doing everything they can to um, meet their own kind of taste. And, th- and then here's the other thing that happens, though. Um, notice verse 4. They will turn away their ears from the truth. Notice, it's not a truth, it's the truth. What's he referring to there? The, the, the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They're going to turn away from that. And notice what they, turn, they will turn towards, myths. And then he, then he encourages Timothy, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Timothy, don't, don't back down because of this. Don't cater because of this. Don't change what you're doing to run around and, what do you want? What do you want? Okay, I'll do that for you. And none of that. No, it's preach the word. But that's not what they want. We have the same thing with the prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, when he is commissioned by God, God basically says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go out and tell them, thus saith the Lord. And then God says, and they're not going to listen to you. Because they're an obstinate people. Now, all of this given to Timothy and preaching the word and, and you know, what's to be like and the opposition he's going to face and, and how he's to endure all those things, that's an amazing thing. But here's the thing. The question I often ask is, Why? Why does Paul instruct him to do that? Why? Why are we so dependent on the word? Why are we always preaching it? We're always in it. We're always saying it. Why? Well, I think we find the answer here in this passage highlighted by one of the worst chapter breaks I've ever seen in the New Testament. And you realize the numbers, the text is inspired, but the numbers, they're not. They're put in by people. And here at chapter 4, verse 1, that section doesn't start there. It really starts earlier. And I think we get the answer to our question, why this focus on the scriptures? Two verses earlier. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. You know what that word means? Scripture is literally God breathed. You're not going to find that anywhere else. God is the one himself. You want to hear God's voice? Here it is. It's breathed out by God. And because of that, it's profitable. Notice he goes on to say that. It's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So you can see there is this reproof or correction. What, 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 is, what does God's word do? Well, when, when the Holy Spirit is working in such a way to use this, we sense God's reproof or correction, do we not? 
That's a good thing. That's, that's a mercy. That's a blessing. Uh, we're trained in righteousness. Again, we're, we're trained to be able to be disciples, to follow Jesus. We're, we're equipped for every good work. Again, do those good works make you righteous before God? No, they don't. They can't. You're standing before God is secured by Christ alone. If you've trusted in him, if you've placed your faith in him, you have received his righteousness like a garment that you didn't make, like a garment you didn't buy. He gives it to you and says, wear this. His white robes of righteousness. And God sees you and sees you as the one who has actually carried out Christ's righteous acts where he saw Jesus on the cross as the one who committed the sins that you've committed. It's a perfectly just exchange because Jesus willingly went to the cross. And that invitation is for you today. If you've not yet received that righteousness, you can. You can receive it as a gift. There are no payment plans. You can't put this thing on layaway and try to put money aside later to earn it. You can't do that. It's a gift. But you can receive it. You can receive it and be forgiven this very day. And when that happens, you will come to life for the very first time. And you'll be made right with your creator because you've been made, you were built by God to know God personally. That's what revival is like. And that's what Ezra is committed to. And so God provides leaders in bringing about revival. And this particular leader had a particular heart set. And he studied the law of the Lord and he practices, and practiced it and he taught it. And in doing so, God brought about great revival. There's other ways, though, that God revives his people through turbulent times. He doesn't just provide leaders. He also does so, brings this revival by overruling rulers. God does that. He overrules rulers. Who did he overrule in this case? Artaxerxes. The ruler of, oh, I don't know, not a small kingdom, the ruler of Persia. It was massive. It was the superpower at the time. Now, you might recall a few chapters earlier, Artaxerxes opposed the work of rebuilding the temple. It's amazing how things happen in politics and God just actually is orchestrating these things to bring about his purposes. So, for Artaxerxes, from what we can tell from history, he's got a problem. His problem is another nation called Egypt. You know how superpowers have a way of clashing? Well, in this case... Egypt, he had a mass battle with Egypt and he lost. And he's going, wait a minute, what did I do wrong? And one of the things he does as a polytheistic ruler, he goes, I need to make sure all the deities are happy with me. And so he considers Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be yet another one of those deities. So here he is going, okay, I'm sending you back. And so from verses 11 all the way through to verse 26, we see his decree of, of go back and you have my full support. And you're going, man, how is that possible? Well, look at the second part of verse 6. Here we find again, this Ezra goes up from Babylon 
And it says, and the king granted him, Ezra, all that he requested. And you're going, man, Ezra, you must be like Mr. Persuader. Not everybody walks into Artaxerxes and says, hey, I want him to go back. I want to rebuild the temple. By the way, I want you to provide all the money for it. I mentioned that before. That would be like, again, Gavin Newsom shows up on our front patio here and goes, you know what? State of California wants to pay for the entire Access for All project. Here you go. And yeah, as I mentioned before, will we take the money? Please, that's a totally different discussion. But the point is, point is, if that happened, we'd be like, whoa. So this is essentially Artaxerxes, king of Persia, going, go. Whatever money you need, you got it. Whatever materials you need, you got it. Oh, by the way, the people working in the temple, they can't be taxed either. It's like the first 501c3 right here. <laughs> you can't tax them. It's not going to happen. And you think, why is that happening? How is all this coming about? Is it Ezra? Well, look at the end of verse 6. He was granted him all he requested, notice, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. That's why. Yes, God used Ezra. Ezra was very wise. We've just seen that. He's very skilled with God's word. He's, he's brilliant. He's a great leader. And yet, God is the one who's at work. You'll notice in verse 9, it's the same thing. He travels all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. And by the way, there's a beautiful spiritual picture there as well, right? Of revival. Leaving Babylon, going to Jerusalem. Returning to God's place. But notice at the end of verse 9 what it says. They arrived safely on the first of the fifth month because the good hand of his God was upon him. There it is again. And so we find here this beautiful description of what we would call the doctrine of concurrence. What does that mean? Concurrence means one thing is happening and another thing is happening at the exact same time. So here we see in the end of chapter 6, or verse 6, what is it? The king granted Ezra everything he requested. Why? Because the hand of the Lord God was upon him. Well, wait, was it God? Or was it Ezra? Yes. Well, but if God's sovereignly overruling all the thing, then, then Ezra had nothing to do with it. Apparently not. No, Ezra really did work. He really did labor. He didn't just kind of go off into this kind of ivory tower cloister, I'm going to study God's law. Whatever happens outside this ivory tower, I don't care, that's up to God. No, he was active, he was engaged, he worked, he labored, he, he did all he could to, to bring about this restoration. And yet, God was the one who had his hand on him. And we see the same thing in verse 9. They arrived safely. That's not an easy trip. That's a treacherous journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, four months and you're dealing with everything from the elements to making sure supplies are in order. You've got water. You've got bandits. You've got, you've got it all. Enemies of the state, they're all out there. And yet, the good hand of his God was upon him. And so we don't have, you know, Ezra doesn't just reduce himself down to this, this scholar that just sits in the room and, and ignores everything that's happening around him. Um... At the same time, we also see this isn't all about Ezra, you know, getting everything together and making it happen. It's not resting on his shoulders. 
No, instead, there's, there's, a, there's one who, who does plan and strategize and praise and trusts God and yet watches God work at the same time. And we need to learn that too. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have revival in your life, if you're gonna know that personally, if we're gonna know it as a church together, we need to be active and, and, and laboring and endeavoring and moving forward. And yet at the same time, we need to be trusting God. Because God's the one who's the all-powerful one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Yeah, exactly. So God revives his people through turbulent times by providing, lever, excuse me, by providing leaders, by overruling rulers, and thirdly, also by guiding circumstances. That, that's what we see in, in, in verses 7 through 10. Others come with Ezra. He's not alone. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just do this by himself. We need one another. We need community. Again, we cannot live this thing called the Christian life by ourselves. And yet, it takes effort for us to connect with one another. And I think that's even more true today than at any other time in our history. That's why I think in Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves, labored, devoted, they were deliberate, to what? The apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. That was corporate prayer there, together. They, they, they worked at that. And, and at that time, they didn't have all the things that, that we have to fight to be together. I think in our area, it's really hard. The average commute for someone in our area is approximately 45 minutes each direction. Some of you are going, I wish that was my commute. I know, I said it was average, okay? That's a lot of time you're spending in the car every day. All right, and then on top of that, we have other things like, I don't know, technology. That makes it harder for us to connect. Isn't that ironic too? Because we have this thing, again, we've talked about social media. Yeah, I don't know. Don't think we're connecting more because of it. It's not very social. And then on top of that, we have, um, I don't know, just things that we can do. There's so much we can do. And I'm going to sound really archaic right now. I'm, pretty, I'm getting better at that, by the way. I can get pretty archaic. Yeah. So get this. The light bulb. It, it changed things. Do you realize before the light bulb, you know what people did when it got dark? They went to sleep. Yeah, like there's no light. I'm going to bed. That was it. What happens with the light bulb? Oh, I can stay up a little longer. I can get more done. Right? So now I've got more to do. I can do more. More, more, more. So my, my schedule's more packed. It's, it's more full. I've got less time for you because I've got to do X, Y, or Z. Not to mention, uh, you know, phones. This will be slightly archaic, but I've mentioned it before. The garage door opener. Not super helpful, folks. Really isn't. I mean, really, you drive up to your house, your neighbor's out in front, and you, and you drive in. It closes. I'm in my fortress. Fortress of solitude, right? There it is. So we have to work hard, I think, to make sure that we are, in fact, communing together in community with one another. But here, we see the principle, all these others came along with Ezra. 
And next week, in, in, in chapter 8, that'll be described more fully. But uh, God is guiding that circumstance. God didn't leave Ezra alone in that. And he had him arrive safely. Again, not to be taken for granted. The, the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And so we find that there's strategic ways that Ezra and others teamed up with other people on that journey, gifted leaders, and they worked hard together. And, and they worked hard t- together to, to labor to bring about God's desired result there at the temple. And we, we realize that, you know, walking with God is not a spectator sport. It takes everyone. It takes all of us. Um, we find Ephesians 4 talks about that, that, that God gives people gifts. If you're uh, uh, someone who's come to Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift. You probably have more than one. And you're called to use that gift. And again, that takes deliberate work to get involved, to serve, to build up one another. That's what the gifts are given for, to build up the body of Christ. And, and so we need to make sure we, we are strategic about that and deliberate about that. Um, but there's, there's, there's the way in which God is, is, his good hand is upon Ezra. We find that, that's, by the way, that is, that is Exodus language. This is certainly a second Exodus. We find God using those same phrases about the outstretched arm of God for Moses and the work of his hands. Uh, we see that also in the creation account, right? God made all things uh, by his hands. All things were created, we're told. So we see creation allusions here. We see Exodus pictures here. And all this is what God's doing to bring about this revival in his people. And that's always been the case. There's, there's always going to be formidable enemies. Uh, there's always going to be opposition. There's going to be discouragement. There's going to be things in which we, we face them and either personally or together as a family of, of, of believers, we, we lack the resources. We don't have what, what it takes. And yet what God does is he, he guides circumstances in such a way to bring about his purposes. So God revives his people through turbulent times by providing leaders, overruling rulers, guiding circumstances. And also by imparting his word. We, we touched on this before, but we see it especially in, in verse 10, where again, Ezra and, and at the end says he, he was to teach it. He didn't just set his heart to study it and examine it and, and to practice it, but he also proclaimed it. And uh, I, I think um, a really great place to see Ezra in action, we can kind of zoom in on this, would be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Go ahead and flip over to that if you would. Nehemiah 8, it's just the next book over. Just turn over to Nehemiah 8, and we find this is dealing with the same period of history. And here is Ezra, and he's actually gathered with the people. And, and they're in front of the water gate. And he brings the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And, uh, and notice, notice what happens. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 2. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You see what's happening? There's revival happening. They've rediscovered the word. And now Ezra's brought it out and they're hearing it read. And they are there from morning all the way through to noon. And you guys are going, Chris, don't even think about preaching that long. I'm not. I'm just saying, look at them. Thrilled. Eager. 
And then notice verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they made for the purpose. Wow. We got one of those. I have people say that before. Like, well, why do we have a podium? I'm like, hey, it's actually there in Nehemiah 8. It's a good thing. But that's so, they made for the, and beside him stood um, several other leaders. And then by verse 5, notice, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Yeah, when we stand for, when we're standing in, in, in light of reading the Word of God, it's not just like, oh, that's a really great thing we do every week. Or Actually, no, it's, it's in Nehemiah 8. It's the people of God are being revived. They're excited about the Word, and when it's read, they stand. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I love that. You know, there's so many different ways to express praise to God. I know lifting the hands is more popular these days. If people want to bow low, that's great too. What, you know, whatever. Some, some people are more expressive that way. Others are not. That's not the point. The point is, is our hearts lifted to God in praise? And are we saying amen, amen, as the word is read? And then look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That word for translating really is explaining is the idea. So we have expository preaching right here in Nehemiah 8. Revival is coming and the word is opened and explained and God's spirit moves to awaken the hearts of his people. So that's... A way God revives his people through turbulent times. He imparts his word. And, and God's revelation really is given to us, not just, again, to know. It, it's really to enliven our hearts. It's to reorder our lives. And we also find because the word is brought out, do you realize what we're doing by, by bringing this forward each week is to, is to recognize that there really are not easy solutions or, or quick recipes to solve the problems of life in a broken world. I mean, this book is filled with nuance and, 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 and grit and reality. And, and so we find that we're going to understand what God is calling us to in our lives. And the Spirit is working in such a way that we can live in, 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 anew in Him. So God, God revives His people through turbulent times by providing leaders, overruling rulers, guiding circumstances, imparting his word, and lastly, by awakening praise. That's the result. And we find that um, Ezra declares here in, in, in Ezra 7, verses 27 through 28, says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a king, thing as this in the king's heart. So he's, he's overwhelmed by what God's done. He's praising him for answering prayer. You've taken Artaxerxes, the one who opposed us, and now, even as we're told in the Proverbs, right, that the heart of the king is like channels of water in, in the Lord's hands. And God directs it how he wills. You know, that's Proverbs 21, but he, it talks about how the heart of the king channels water, and God just goes, and that's what God's doing here. The king's heart has been changed. 
And so God, God's done this to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, verse 28, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and bef- before all the king's mighty princes. You talk about a bureaucratic power grouping. These are the highest, highest officials of Persia. And Ezra is saying, God, you've brought me before them and I have favor in their eyes and it's not because of me. You've given me favor in their eyes. You've brought this to pass. And then we come back to that beautiful refrain throughout this section at the end of verse 28. Thus I was strengthened, notice, according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. There it is again. God's hand is upon Ezra. And he was strengthened. And he gathered leading men from Israel to go up with him. So there is a way in which God encouraged Ezra by answering prayer. God encouraged Ezra by leading him. And certainly Ezra was able to receive this because of his own heart set. And revival was happening. Revival came about. And so as we close, I just want to leave you with some thoughts. Genuine revival. What do we see of genuine revival in here? First, Revival comes by a rediscovery of God's word. And by the way, if you trace revivals historically, not just there at that time, the great awakening of the 1700s and every revival since then, a key part of a genuine revival will always be a rediscovery of God's word. Then next, there is the illumination and conviction by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes what he wrote and he convicts and illumines, and he turns the lights on. That's what illumination is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Before you were a believer, before I was a believer, I can tell you this right now, I would read this book and I was like, whatever. I don't know. But then, when I came to Christ, I used to make fun of people that read this book. I mocked them. And then, my first year of college, I come to Jesus. I literally could not go a day without reading God's Word. I would not survive the day. There was a desire that God gave. Why? The Spirit was at work to turn on the lights so I could see it and bring conviction. Another part of genuine revival, not just rediscovery of God's word and illumination and conviction of the spirit, but also a repentance of heart. Real revival, when we see it and we're praying for it, we're desirous of it and we long for it. And, and, and again, there's different contemporary things that, that, that have come and, and I would pray that they're genuine. I would desire that. But these elements are going to be there. Repentance is going to be a big part of it. Because the spirit is opening our eyes to see and he's bringing his conviction. Another element of genuine revival, invigoration of spiritual life. There's just this zeal that comes. There's a longing, there's a hunger, there's a passion that God brings about as these other things unfold. And then a last characteristic of genuine revival would be exuberant, exuberant prayer and praise. Just prayer and praise that just unfolds 
before God, unfurls before him with, with, with joy. Uh, why? Because we've rediscovered God's word. Because the spirit of God is at work opening our eyes to see, bringing conviction. We're turning away from, from the false gods that so easily ensnare us and we're turning toward him. There's an invigoration of spiritual life. What's the natural outcome of that? Praise. Prayer. Joy. So that's our desire. The question is, is that yours? Do you long for revival? Then I invite you that together we would pursue Ezra's path. That we'd set our hearts to examine, to study, to know the law of the Lord, that we would set our hearts to practice it, that we would teach it one to another, that we would embrace what the Spirit is doing through his word, and that we would embark upon repentance every day, that we'd be invigorated by the Spirit's indwelling work because we've, made, we've been made one with Jesus as New Testament believers. And that we would just absolutely unfurl before God prayer and praise to his glory. And then, in light of all of this, that we would live in our community in this world as beacons of the gospel. That they would know that we're Christ followers because of our love for one another. May the Lord accomplish those beautiful things amongst us today and into the future. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look to you to, to bring this about. We thank you that you were the one that revives your people. We pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see what genuine revival looks like. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace, we would be strengthened according to your grace. Certainly in Christ, we've received grace upon grace. And may this cause us to just overflow with joy and praise to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.